listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. All right, Jeff. So as we continue our our dive into value here, we've got another great guest with us today. I'm really excited to welcome Steve Guido, who is actually, in my mind, probably the smartest thinker, the best advisor as it relates to value and transition and ownership in the A&E space. So super excited to have him here with us. Steve is principal of ROG Partners and, well, just Welcome, Steve. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jason. Great to be here. So let's start at the top. So why, actually, why don't you give us just a quick intro to you? I mean, I gave a short one, but maybe a little more background on you and then a little bit of background on ROG Partners and what you guys do. And then we're going to jump right into value creation in the AE space, I think, or at least from your, your perspective. Sure. Yeah, thank you for that. Yes, I'm based in our Washington, D.C. office. And I've been helping architecture, engineering, construction, environmental consulting firms of all shapes and disciplines for 20 years on a range of growth and exit strategies. So there has typically not been a, a scenario or, or situation that I haven't encountered with firms that are looking to expand or with ownership groups that are looking to transition to, to another phase of their organizational and professional careers. Our headquarters is based in Boston, but we work nationally. Our team generally has several different service lines. Our core service is business valuations and appraisals. We do those uh, mainly for privately held firms of all shapes and sizes. And those range from internal buy-sell agreements and formulas, fairness opinions. Uh, we get involved in litigation of having to determine value with disputes with parties. But that's fine. Positions and, and like, <laughs> yes, you would be surprised how many partners sue each other uh, over years or there's some dispute and, and they Gosh. have to reconcile that. Just tried to sue me about my performance on the podcast. Yeah, but okay. I told okay. him out of it. Yep. We do a range of internal ownership transition planning that's generally helping um, owners move blocks of stock from one generation to the next. Sometimes they, they need a consultant to help value and facilitate that. We have a robust ESOP practice. As you guys both know, there's a lot of employee stock ownership plans, employee-owned firms in our industry, and we help from the creation of those to annual appraisal reports and getting their stock price together for that. And as I said, I lead our merger and acquisition practice. I help firms on the buy side and on the sell side to grow, to enhance value, to extract value over time. I love what I do, and this is a great industry to work in, and I'm delighted to be part of this podcast today. Well, we are super glad to have you here. You know, when we started this series on value creation, you were one of the people that came top of mind for me. So, Jeff, where do you, where do you want to start us? Where do you want to start with Steve? Well, welcome, Steve. <laughs> Let's jump in with the question and definition of value. How do you, as an organization, define value? Well, uh, that's that's kind of a, a broad question to start, but I think it's an important one in terms of a theoretical valuation or appraisal definition, and then the kind of reality of, of value that we see in terms of manifesting itself in, in organizations. And in most cases, it's it's generally what a willing buyer and willing seller would agree to pay for an asset. And in somewhat simple terms, that's kind of a fair market value. So whether you are, are buying a, a piece of of art or an engineering company or some beach condo, uh, value is is the, the kind of meeting of, of a buyer and seller and interaction and exchange of consideration for that asset. Now, how you measure value takes a lot of different forms, but that's a broad form of value for a lot of different type of assets today. 
what are some of the drivers of value for AE firms? You know, so you kind of you kind of threw out there. I like the way you did that. So, uh, engineering companies, a piece of art, whatever it is, there's an objective value to it. So, what are some of the things that you look at and you say, you know, these are some of the core value drivers for a professional services firm in the case of an, of an AE firm? Yeah. So, so just just real quickly, there's when we come in and help firms measure their value. Companies will come and ask us, we, we need a valuation for an internal formula to value our stock between shareholders here, or we're interested in valuing our company if we want to take it out to market. There are different approaches to deriving that value. There are typically income-based approaches where you're forecasting the, the revenue and profitability of a company, discounting those cash flows back at an appropriate rate of return and kind of a, a true measure of value in any type of professional firm is, is the amount of profitability or cash flow that a company will, will kick off over time. And then the other framework of that is, is comparable. So comparing a company to other recent sale transactions per se, almost akin to selling a house or a piece of property. If there are multiples or yeah. comparables of residential commercial property on a square foot basis, the same thing you see multiples or comparables of other mergers and acquisitions of companies in our space. So you can draw comparisons that way. So you have an income approach and, and, and generally kind of a market sector approach to measuring value. But I think that transcends to your second question is how do firms enhance their value or what really drives value for professional service firms in general? So taking what I just said, typically it's it's understanding the firm's revenue and growth trajectory. Typically larger firms are more valuable than smaller firms in AE. And is that revenue growing over time? Is the trends variable or volatile or is there a consistency in top line revenue? Jason, are the revenues concentrated with a particular client base or are they a diversified, good balance of clients or public-private sector mix? Profitability, how is the company generating its profits? Are, are they doing it because of higher fees or labor multipliers? Are they doing it with higher utilizations and running people pretty pretty hard? Do they have low overhead structures? So so sometimes when, when we go in and, and, and evaluate or value a company, it's a little bit of a forensic exercise. Like, you know, the financial statements are kind of the report card for the company. And we come in and say, well, what's, what's going on here? What's, who's Who's responsible for bringing in work? Who's responsible for executing work? Yeah. What's the culture of this company in terms of, of cash flow management, project management flow, repeat work with clients in terms of brand and marketing and things like that? So there's a lot of different factors that, that go into understanding what drives a, a people-based organization from that perspective. I have a, a bit of a follow-on question to that. It seems to me when you think about this from a buyer's perspective, if, if someone's you know looking to make an acquisition, some of these things sort of compete with themselves, right? So like, let me just hear me out for a second. Maybe you can then jump on. So on the one hand, obviously client concentration is sort of a bad thing, right? Like so so for the you know the the firm, if they get too many resources tied up in one type of client, one client or one set of types of client, that would seem like it would be a bad thing. On the other hand, often an acquirer might be going, well, we want access to that client. We want access to, you know, this market sector that we don't have access to. Do those things sometimes sort of like have a yin and a yang where it's a positive and negative at the same time? Yeah, there's, that's, that's a great question because you see a a good number of 
AE firms, and they're either multidiscipline in types of their services or they're, they're multi-sector in terms of their client base. They have multiple studios. They have multiple client penetrations in terms of the public or private sector. That often is, there, there's a cross-current with either the single-discipline firms, we only do electrical engineering, or the, the market sector concentration, we only do healthcare, we only do data centers, we only work for the EPA, whatever it is. So you're right. Sometimes a, a buyer is, is, is interested and, you know, we want to be in this particular market sector, let's say it's uh, ESG or, or solar energy or something like that. So we want to find a pure play firm that does that. And we want to bring those skills and capabilities into our organization because it's, it's hard for us to cultivate that or longer for us to cultivate that internally. Steve, you said something that triggered a thought in me. You mentioned ESG, right? ESG is hot right now. Jeff's favorite topic. Okay. My my sense is, you know, there's as as Jason pointed out, there's sell value and there's buy value. And you started out talking about, you know, how much is a willing party willing to pay for the thing that they're buying. And ESG is is hot right now. And in some of the the prep that I did, you had a great piece, and I'll link to it in the in the show notes on trends in this this space, and that's the entrance of private equity into this area, which traditionally has not been where private equity firms would play. Can you talk a little bit about the trends that you see and how firms, to Jason's point, become the yin to your yang at the right time in in the development of their firms and when they do want to have some kind of liquidity event. Yeah. Let me unpack some of those those good questions and observations. Yes, uh, certainly there are our market sectors that are always uh, hot or growing in our industry and also shrinking and markets such as ESG and that's a broad term for uh, renewables, alternatives, environmental and social best practices in our industry. Those are tending to be a little bit more attractive to buyers today that are interested in expanding into those market sectors. And as many companies can do, they can either grow that organically and try to find those people and clients and build it in-house or try to find a a specialized company to kind of bring that in. So that typically gets to a buy versus build decision for buyers today. I look at the private equity wave that has swept up our industry with over 100 AE firms recapitalized by an outside investor as kind of a an, an iteration of ownership models and trends over the last 40 years. So so this 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 industry of AE firms was was typically a genteel a small boutique design firm mindset from an ownership perspective. You think of those Sterling Cooper madman days of of bringing in owners and and handshake type of deals and and into the ownership and leadership ranks. And there's still a lot of internal ownership models that work that way, whether it's through deferred compensation or sweat equity or things like that. The 80s and 90s uh, created a boom in the ESOP or the employee stock ownership plan model in terms of of broadening ownership uh, participation in our, our industries. And they're still popular today. The 2000s saw a lot of international buyers come into the U.S., the Stantex, the Cardinals, the GHDs, the Bureau Veritas, the Arcadis, with a lot of cross-border deals that were interested in enhancing their presence here in the U.S., hard to do that organically. And this kind of fourth wave, to be honest with you, are, are outside investor groups that raise money from institutions, 
high net worth individuals, and they invest in mature established businesses. And for the longest time, private equity invested in logistics, transportation, energy, manufacturing, software type of businesses, harder assets, recurring cash flow. Because of so much money and and you know flowing around the world now seeking returns, private equity investors have become more and more comfortable investing in professional service elevator asset type businesses. And Jeff, to your point, they they are attracted to the themes of infrastructure renewal in our country. ESG and environmental sustainability and stewardship in our country. So there are a lot of attractive themes that that private equity firms see. So you have this kind of collision between a financial partnership coming to a design partnership, swapping stock and, and recapitalizing the company. And then these companies have become much more aggressive in terms of, of scooping up other firms, either in their market sector or across the country. It's really interesting to see. Some of these companies are coming at very high valuation levels. It's going to be interesting to see how they exit some of these platforms because private equity typically has a three to seven year window before they transition out, whether it's an IPO or a sale to another private equity firm. But it's been very fascinating to see. I have a, well, first off, you used the phrase elevator asset, which I absolutely thought was hilarious. I've never heard that phrase before. I love it. We need a virtual version of that. I'm not sure what it is, like Zoom asset. <laughs> the, whole, the whole business can, can function on Zoom. But I, I like that that a lot. I had a question in there that I thought was super interesting. Are you When you look at all these deals that are being done, you know, a lot of this private equity activity, and are these owner exits where, where owners are saying they want to get out? Or is it like they're looking to almost like, almost like take a home equity line, right? Like, hey, let's just take some money out of this thing. You know, we, we built this thing a lot. We've, we've, we've grown it a lot. Let's take some capital out and keep going. Like, what, what do you see? Yeah, there are a lot of different models uh, coming together on the private equity side. And I would just offer, there's almost a, a private equity backed platform for every service line in our industry, geotechnical, MEP, architecture, civil engineering, environmental, structural engineering. I mean, there's, 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 there's now a private equity or multiple private equity backed companies in all of those verticals today. In most cases, you are seeing a concentration of older owners who have frankly eschewed an ESOP model or an internal model and have been approached by a financial group who can offer them higher liquidity, generally the same level of autonomy. They keep their name on the door. And they're able to kind of sell 80%. There's typically rollover equity in this model, and they will typically try to grow it over time and have a second bite of the Apple exit. That's that's the, the, the traditional private equity model that we are seeing today. Although, however, we also are seeing companies that have that have had ESOPs in place who have sold as well. So maybe that ESOP model was great for the company back in the 90s or 2000s, but it just doesn't resonate well, or it's just not effective as an employee benefit tool today. So ESOP firms are selling as well. And then finally, you are seeing private equity firms that will buy two or three or four similar size companies and then kind of mold them into one organization and rebrand it completely. So there might be an ABC, an XYZ, and a one, two, three, and they're coming together under one umbrella family of brands. And the private equity firm is 
coming up with a creative brand name and a new industry brand. So I think we're going to see a, a new number of industry lexicon names in our industry. And really the bottom line of this is scale. It's, it's not to find more people. It's very hard to find people in our industry today. Companies are coming in today and they're looking to scale these up for value. And as I said before, the number one driver of firm value in our industry is typically size. So all things being considered, a 1,000 person AE firm is going to be more valuable than a 200 person AE firm. Is that what the PE partners are really seeing here? Is an industry that is largely distributed, full of lots of small, mid-sized regional players, and it's kind of a roll-up kind of thing? Yeah, I think so, Jason. I think it's it's an industry ripe for consolidation. There's typically uh, 250 to 400 transactions that happen in our industry every year. And to be honest with you, you know, I've, I've been doing this for, for quite a while. Over the last 10 years, we've seen 2,500 plus M&A deals in North America with AE firms of all shapes and sizes. And it's almost like beach erosion, right? Like you'll, you'll, you'll see a map of like, this is what like an ocean looked like in 2000. And this is what it looks like now. And you're like, man, over time, that really looks fairly stark. So, so many companies that are just no longer with us from the URSs and the CH2M Hills down to other smaller firms, it's, it's really changed the landscape of companies here of great brands that are just part of other organizations today. It's, it's pretty interesting to look at this from the short-term perspective, but when you look back and kind of see it from a longer-term perspective, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal. Divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, Principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. It's interesting because, you know, as this plays out, you wonder if you're going to finally see some sort of like, I'll just call it like breakout brands in the space. People ask me this all the time. As you know, we do a lot of thought leadership development. That's how we make a living for the most part. They'll say to me, like, you know, who's who's got the, the most powerful brand or the best thought leadership coming out of the AE space? And I'm, there, there isn't anybody, really. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, relative to like what you see in other sectors where you can name some companies off the top of your head and you're like, man, they are really well respected in that area. Very few, if anybody, has really been able to break out of the space and have like, you know, broader visibility. It's just really curious to me if you're going to see out of this process emerge, uh, to use your terms, Jeff, almost like a legacy type type firm, you know. Well, let's shift gears a little bit before we run out of time. One thing I'm curious about, we spent a little bit of time kind of talking macro really about kind of the, you know, what's going on in the industry and it's been super interesting, but I want to come back to sort of like the owner. So, so if you're the, you know, or the leader, you know, you're the managing partner of the firm, you know, when you talk to firms and you work with firms on value creation efforts, what do you see are their biggest stumbling blocks? What makes building value hard for firm leaders, managing partners? Where do they get it wrong? Yeah, I, I think in, in some cases, companies have to go through various evolutions of growth. So you, you try to migrate from that, you know, 10 to 50 person firm and to get to the next level, let's say to be 50 to 150, that requires investment. That requires investment in processes, in people, in infrastructure. Maybe you don't have a bookkeeper, but you have a controller. Maybe you don't have a controller, you have a, C a CFO, and, and you kind of you, you you become more professionalized over time. And sometimes that's that's hard to do, and it's certainly hard to do when you have such acute talent shortages that we have today. If you talk to leaders today, they've had 
incredible years, oddly enough, in 2020 and 2021, hardly impacted at all by, by COVID. Many of them, including the publicly traded firms, have record levels of backlog right now. So I think the building blocks of growth are there. They have the work, but at this point in the cycle, it's it's getting enough people to effectively execute it, manage it, and deliver it. And then kind of with that frenetic activity of just churning through projects, it's also how can we kind of you know leverage this over time and continue to grow it and scale it over time and keep the momentum up despite shifts in the economy from that perspective. So, you know, we are at a, a, a kind of a little bit of a fragile point in the economy now with, with higher levels of inflation, particularly a bit of an economic slowdown now. And a lot of owners that went through this experience in 2008 and nine, interest rates, you know, high energy prices, mm-hmm. cascading home prices are, are, are kind of be a little bit wary at this point. So we go through growth cycles in industries, we go through investment cycles in industries, and then we also have to go through navigating periods of a little bit of uncertainty. But I will just tell you the last two or three years, this industry has been remarkably resilient, remarkably strong. The leaders in this industry have done a great job with everything with COVID has thrown at them and have really come up on top. I um, have a question for you. So with this with this influx of PE, one of the things I've noticed in this industry, I've, as you know, I've, I've worked, you and I met over almost a decade ago and we, I don't remember how we met, but I've worked in and around this industry, not as long as you, but but over that whole 10-year period. And one of the things I've noticed when I look across the, the space is that most firms are run by a practitioner, right? So most firms are run by former engineer. And actually, a lot of the, the functional parts of the business are, are the same. This, the CMO is an ex-engineer, not a former marketer. Some of the best firms that I've encountered, the firms that I actually think are the highest performing on a lot of levels are not run that way. You know, In fact, the one firm I can think of that I've been super impressed with over the last decade is actually run by a, well, the CFO, basically, he was an accountant who now runs the firm. So I'm curious with this influx of PE money and everything going on, are you seeing more of that? Are you seeing firms turn to almost like professional management, someone who 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 is not coming up through the ranks to run this place? Yeah, I, I will say, and you're exactly right, the vast, vast majority of companies in this space kind of like a law firm or accounting firm are run by practitioners and and individuals that that know the business of, of design uh, or consulting and they've come through the ranks and they're now leading their firms in that regard. One of the different elements you're seeing from a human capital perspective with the private equity firms is a private equity firm has come in, they've recapitalized an AE firm. In some cases, that leadership team may have been helpful to get the firm to that level but to get the firm to the next level may require a whole different mindset. So I will tell you, uh, and, and we don't do executive recruiting, but I certainly talk to a lot of recruiters in this space and they are, they are seeing these groups with deep pockets, they are the aggregators of, of talent, CFOs, marketers, COOs, CEOs. Sometimes they were with big publicly traded organizations and they're being wooed with signing bonuses and stock option grants and the ability to kind of run the show and take this firm from maybe 50 million in revenue to 150 million in revenue and have an active second turn uh, transaction a few years later. So yes, the, the, the private equity firms have been very pronounced in terms of aggregating and, and taking talent from other traditional firms into these platforms. That's really interesting. Yeah. I have also noticed that, you know, recently in the last couple of years, you know, I, you know, as you know, I sort of carried the banner or something for, for more strategic marketing thinking in this industry for a very long time. And sometimes it felt like I was swimming upstream like salmon in the Pacific Northwest and I was never going to make it. Right. And I've started to see a lot more of that. I've seen it's just a lot more. And it's actually 
not, you know, marketers coming from outside the space or young folks coming in with a much more digital minded approach and, and, you know, kind of like shedding the proposal support functions a lot. So it's been, it's been nice to see that this, the industry sort of start to catch up with some of its professional services peers because it's, 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 it's sort of been behind in that, in that arena for a very long time based on my experience. Yeah. And, and what I hope there, and, and I don't know if you're seeing this in, in, in periods like this, you know, Jason, where we have so much work, everybody is so busy, the phone's ringing off the hook. It, it harkens back to 2005, 2006 is, does the marketing discipline get lazy? Is, is we're not being active or we're not being proactive, either from our message and brand to our RFP response to 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 our showcasing of projects, and we're just too busy. And I hope that's not the case because cycles turn, and um, you want to be able to to certainly have a an, an aggressive mindset with sales and business development and marketing efforts, regardless of of the time period. I mean, the best firms that I've seen are not. In fact, what I've seen them they're being more thoughtful. They're saying, "Well, okay, time out. Well, what what are we what are we doing here? You know, from a marketing perspective, and they're and they're really stepping back and thinking about what type of work they really want to win in the next five, six years and where they want to take things. And and they're being more more strategic about thought leadership and they're being more strategic about their digital presence and what they're doing there. And so now I'm, I'm, I'm generalizing, right? There's tons of firms and, and there's tons of firms that probably aren't, but the, the firms that I've interacted with, I've seen that. So, all right, we're, we're coming up on time here. You know, I guess maybe I'm going to punt it over to Jeff. Jeff, is there something we didn't cover? And we did a nice kind of like run up to this that we missed that you're like, man, Jason, we need to talk about this before we lose Steve. You know, my, my takeaway from this conversation is in order to create value, you need to put yourself in position by focusing on scale, size, reach, and some particular discipline. And then it really becomes, my sense is, a matter of serendipity. What's, what is the trend? So I, I, I have two questions for you. The, the first one, I think will be straightforward. And the second one, I'm going to put make you go out on a limb. Okay. First one, what are firms doing that are destroying value that they need Ooh. to stop doing today? I'll stop there. Okay. Yes. You know, sometimes you see in, in, in markets like this, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats, right? So companies are doing well because the overall economic and industry framework is doing well. And sometimes companies, sometimes it's not their fault that the performance is suffering because they are either in a geographic location or a vertical that just gets hurt. It might be mining or oil and gas or some sort of cyclical type of market where they're on a down cycle. It could be a funding issue if you're doing work with K through 12 schools in Ohio and it's just not active on the budget. I mean, there, there's, 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 there's legitimate. Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> there are, there are, there are, you know, types of things where the company is not doing well because of overall factors. But at a firm level, if you are not focusing on growth, focusing on profitability, engaging a culture of people to perform at their best. If you have an organization, and again, these are people businesses, that is a sweatshop or a turnover heavy organization that's confusing to clients and confusing for staff members. You just know those firms that have those type of cultures are, are just very hard to sustain over time, whether just kind of egocentric with an owner or principal, 
or they're not very open from a performance perspective. So, you know, good company, and a lot of this comes down to leadership. Good leaders cultivate success. They cultivate growth. They cultivate a mission. They kind of charge people to extend beyond themselves in their organization. And lousy firms do do the reverse. It's, it's poor leadership. It's taking your eye off the ball. It's a turnover machine. And unfortunately, those, those companies struggle. I'm not surprised. We all, we've all seen yeah, yeah. I'm not surprised to hear it. And I, I bet That's you awesome. it's probably easy for you to see when you come into a business like that right away. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. You know, I've I've seen and talked to wonderful, engaging leaders that are charismatic and full of pride about their organizations. And then you ask them for three or five years of financial statements and they're lousy. And you just have to kind of wonder, you know, what, what's going on here between a leadership team that seems to be, you know, that, that talks the talk, but is not kind of executing from a financial performance perspective. And, and financial statements are basically the report cards of any organization, uh, whether they're growing, whether they're shrinking, whether they're making money, whether they have to use high levels of debt, whether they collect their money on time. I mean, we, we could have done another one of these on all types of KPIs and you know efficient metrics that firms use to measure value that way. Hmm. All right, now I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna ask you my second one and make you go out on a limb. Okay. All right. So serendipity is is such a important part to the market timing of realizing this value. We've said that private equity right now is the hot trend. What's coming after private equity Ooh. in this space? Pull out your crystal ball, my friend. Yeah, well, and, and, and I think, you know, I, I, I do get that question quite, quite a bit is, is, you know, where are the other, you know, modes or, 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 or models coming from, from an ownership perspective? I will tell you, many of my clients today are that last generation of baby boomers. You know, they, so, so the boomers were born between 46 and 64. Many of my clients today were born in the late 50s, early 60s, right? And they've had a great run in this industry. And there were a ton of them. There were massive amounts of boomers and they were massive and, and they were they had a mindset toward entrepreneurship and business formation. So many of those are my clients today looking to to get out somehow, whether it's selling to other companies or doing an ESOP or, or internal transition. So then I think your, your question is kind of what's, what's behind that? Will, will, will this M&A activity somewhat ebb over time because there's been a, a frenetic amount of activity and there's just not as many organizations inclined to sell or run by Xers or millennials that just aren't at that peak period from a exit strategy moment in their life? It's going to be interesting to see. So, so I think one demographics plays into this to a strong degree here as the boomers kind of start to retire in earnest and, and, and that shadow tends to fade. And I think, I think the second one is all of this private equity involvement, and there's going to be more PE involvement this year. I don't think as much because interest rates are growing or are, are, are heading north, and this is a leverage game for a lot of PE firms. But I think how these investors kind of get out of that model, whether they flip to other private equity firms, whether some of these firms go public, whether they merge together, and at what value and exit point too, because some of these firms got into these companies at a fairly high EBITDA multiple to begin with. I think those two trends are going to be interesting to see. Well, this was really interesting. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. I think it was really good to hear kind of your perspective on what drives value in an AE firm's <laughs> what destroys value. <laughs> I like that a lot. And I also like your kind of longer term perspective of, of 
of how ownership has changed over time and where it might go from here. So I think it's just a really fascinating discussion. So thanks so much for, for coming on. I had a great time with you guys today. Thanks for having me. All right. See you guys. See ya. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Oh.